History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is King Tut's Grand Vizier. So we've kind of made it a point to not limit ourselves on this podcast to just one specific point in history or one time period, Mm -hmm. I guess, because there's just so much to go over. There's so many people that have been kind of cast to the sidelines or overlooked or were maybe present for the big moments that are forgotten about or things like that. So I do think that while we left that door open to visit any point in history, we've kind of used more recent history as a crutch for ourselves. (laughs) like a lot of our people so far have been 18th 19th century americans because there's just a lot more written records on them and you it's easier to find their information and to get cool stories out of them but i decided to send us back a little bit (laughs) in history for this episode and trust me some regrets were had while researching this episode (laughs) why phil why were regrets had (laughs) Give us about what, like 40 minutes into this episode, people will really start to hear me struggling with what we're talking about. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. You're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone back in history pretty far on some of our episodes, definitely not as many times as we've done the more recent ones, but we've gone back to Al Rahman in the 700s and even Cleisthenes, which was ancient Greece in the 500s BC, which is I'm pretty sure our oldest episode to date, as far oldest as in like when the actual person lived lived their life and made their contributions. But I decided (laughs) in my horrible idea of picking episode topics to go back even further. So today we're looking at 1300s BC. And of course, as referenced by today's episode title, we're looking at ancient Egypt. And I, you know, I like to quiz you on these right at the beginning. So how much do you know about ancient Egypt, specifically pharaohs? Pharaohs. Yeah. They, um, they live in pyramids and, (laughs) and they, they wear suits of, of wrapped cloth and ride lion horse dogs, sphinxes, whatever the sphinx is. I don't know what the sphinx is. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's not a lion horse dog. It's a lion with a, a human face. So yeah, that's that's that. Is it? I think so. Yeah. No. I can't picture the Sphinx right now. That's bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, to be serious, I I don't know. I know that they are one of the most prolific ancient civilizations that developed a lot of natural knowledge. They are the center of their civilization was the Nile River and the Fertile Valley around it. And they wore cool hats. How many pharaohs how many pharaohs can you name? Off the top of your head. 
I mean, obviously, without giving away anything in this episode, obviously, Tut and Common, Kamen, however you pronounce it, King Tut. And I know that there was at least one Ramses, but I think there were two. <laughs> so those are, and actually, I mean, the two that popped into my head because I think they're probably the two most well known, at least probably in Western society, of pharaohs is. Like you said, King Tut or Tutankhamen or Tutankhamen. There's going to be a lot of pronunciation back and forth on this episode. But that's probably the one that everyone would default to when you say ancient Egypt, you immediately think King Tut. And he's obviously just famous because his tomb was discovered mostly intact. And just the the novelty of him being a boy pharaoh, a, a boy king. But really, the discovery of his tomb provided these research opportunities to learn more about ancient Egypt for us to kind of piece together a lot of the history that took place in that yeah. region and to just kind of figure out what life was like then. But King Tut himself was not really a novel pharaoh. He didn't accomplish too much. <laughs> There's nothing really that noteworthy about him except for the fact that he was just a, a boy who became the king, but he's just become like a almost a pop culture reference that he's become so well known in America. That's interesting that it's, it's purely because they found most of his body intact compared with the others and not that he had, you know, a significant impact. Yeah. And the other one you mentioned, uh, Ramses is probably considered to be one of the more powerful pharaohs. Ramses the great, he's actually called typically refers to Ramses the second so not Ramses the first, although you're right, there are a couple Ramses, but uh, when people talk about Ramses, it's usually Ramses the Great. And he's usually referenced as the Pharaoh during the exodus of the Bible. So when Moses mm. freed the Israelites from slavery, he challenged Ramses, Ramses the Great. And I don't know if that's directly referenced in Exodus. Like, I don't think they specifically name a Pharaoh, but that's who it's typically attributed to being just because he's probably really the most well-known and famous pharaoh of all yeah <laughs> and i think that's how a lot of at least us as americans are introduced to the idea of ancient egypt i i mean for me as a child when i think about ancient egypt i think about the bible stories of the israelites being slaves and being freed from ramses and the same things that you see in the prince of egypt movie yeah. and that kind of stuff um, that and obviously what you see the pyramids and the sphinx and the tombs and you go to museums and see the mummies and things like that and that's pretty much how people adopt ancient Egypt into our society right. and our culture and how they first learn about it. Have you ever seen those exhibits at museums? Like have you ever been to one that had just a whole mummy thing? Um, I think so. But I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> Honestly, I went to so many like history museums in middle and high school that like they're all kind of a blur. Reed and I went to the Field Museum one time in Chicago, and it just happened to be their like rotating exhibit at the time was Egypt. And I think they had like two or 300 mummies on display. Like wow. it was some huge, huge collection. Yeah, so it was really cool. And not just the mummies, but like all the different artifacts and stuff that they've pulled from tombs. And these would be like rotating exhibits. So they'd go from one museum to the next. But yeah. It was really cool to see all of that you don't really realize how much how many people i guess went through that burial process that they would still be preserved today right. and really what an amazing process it was that you would still be able to 
pull those bodies what are we now <laughs> three thousand years <laughs> in yeah. the future and then still be something that's recognizable i actually got the idea to do this episode a couple months ago when we went to the pittsburgh carnegie museum with rita's sister bianca and their family and bianca was the one who said uh she really likes ancient egypt and i need to find some pharaoh to mm. talk about for one of our podcast episodes so i'm giving bianca credit for another episode topic that i decided to do <laughs> should have should have but, had her on to to study the ancient egypt information and host this episode and struggle with the pronunciation I don't think she wants to read all the stuff <laughs> that i did for this one uh, but the other thing I think that's kind of, I guess, more of a funny angle for how people might be introduced to some ancient Egypt concepts. And really, I don't know why it was just jumping into my mind a lot when I was preparing for this episode. It was just Scooby-Doo. Like <laughs> you have that scene at the end of every episode where they take the guy's mask off. Or I, I know there's some episodes, maybe even like the very first Scooby-Doo episode where they're in like a museum with mummies and they unwrap the bad guy yeah. and the refrain let's see who you really are. And as I thought about that, I was like, that's kind of a fitting saying for a lot of our B-side episodes because it's yeah, who was the person who's really responsible for this and who is the one that, you know, was behind the scenes or that didn't necessarily get the credit. We're trying to find out who was the one who really had the impact here. And that is going to kind of actually go along with today's topic. But first, let's talk more about ancient Egypt itself. So, Egypt was really founded way, way before we get into the time of pharaohs and kingdoms. There were actually tribes that formed around the Nile Delta that began to establish culture and economies as early as 5500 BC. And naturally, when you have these types of economies, they're going to eventually form some kind of organized government structure. So in this region, it became more of a monarchy, which would be led by someone who was considered a pharaoh. These government structures typically rose and fell in times of war or economic strife. And in total, there was what was considered 30 dynasties or 31, depending on who you ask and how you count them. But there were about 30 dynasties that made up what's known as ancient Egypt. These dynasties were further grouped into what's called the old, middle and new kingdoms. And then those were actually separated by intermediate periods, which were typically when the governments kind of collapsed oh, wow. and there was a lot more economic strife, either from wars or just from hard times, really unstable governments. So some of these dynasties fell into the actual old, middle, or new kingdom periods. These were the ones that are probably a little bit more well-known, more stable. And some of the dynasties that were a little shakier <laughs> would have been in the intermediate periods. Gotcha. And all this over time eventually led into Egypt becoming a part of the Macedonian Empire and later the Ptolemaic Kingdom. And that's where you hear some of the bigger names that you've definitely heard of, things like Alexander the Great, who was a part of the Macedonian Empire, and Cleopatra, probably the most famous female leader of Egypt. Yeah. She would have been during the Ptolemaic Kingdom. So it wasn't a like, cohesive civilization the entire time it existed. It was... I don't know, like you said, wrought with strife and a lot of instability for certain periods. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty similar story to what you'd see in almost any kingdom or empire throughout history is that you're always going to see a lot of turnover and wars and economic struggles and things that kind of test and turn over nations. Uh, so while this really was ancient Egypt, like it was the same 
area, the same technically country, although it probably wouldn't be called that at that time. There was definitely a lot of changeover. It was never homogenous between dynasty number one through dynasty number 30. Like you yeah. definitely would have seen differences between them. So today we are going to focus on everyone's favorite Pharaoh Tutankhamun, which really uh, we're not focusing on him so much, but he's going to be the person that we talk about as like, here's the A-sider and we're going to focus on his B-sider, the person who really was behind the scenes pulling the strings yeah. on Tut as a Pharaoh. <laughs> so his reign lasted from 1332 to 1323 BC. He was a part of what was called the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which was during that new kingdom period. So it was actually one of the later dynasties. He actually took the throne around age eight or nine and really wouldn't have been mature enough to handle That's running crazy an entire... That's crazy that he, like, eight or nine years old, like, I don't know, like, I mean, how did he have any power himself? As an eight-year-old? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, technically, he would have had all the power. He was the pharaoh. But we'll talk a little bit more later on about what King Tut's rule was actually like as pharaoh. Really, the most important thing to keep in mind here is that he had to rely heavily on his advisors gotcha. to basically run Egypt while he was pharaoh because he was a child. Um, and that's really the point of today's episode is that we're going to focus a lot on the man who was actually running Egypt during Tutankhamun's reign. So the man that we're actually talking about today goes by the name I. It's spelled A-Y, pronounced I, so it's actually going to be the simplest name that we're going to talk about today. Keep that in mind. I'm going to do my best as we go through this episode to try to repeat names and try to remind you of like who they actually are because we're going to go through a ton of different people and you'll notice that his early life and his family relationships are extremely messy and that's kind of just <laughs> typical of the time being involved in a royal family there's a lot of intermixing inbreeding marrying your siblings your cousins your nephews your grandchildren it's very weird obviously in our modern society we find that a little bit <laughs> gross we can call it gross it's gross but <laughs> that's just kind of how it was then. That's how they maintained power inside of one family structure. And I was very much connected with the royal family, even though he himself wasn't necessarily in the line of succession for the monarchy. He definitely was yeah. part of the family. <laughs> part Take of that the for family. What, you, what it will, what you will. So, a lot of what we know about I and his family history, his family lineage, is based on circumstantial evidence, which is basically things that are pulled from surviving artifacts or monuments, DNA testing when they could do that with the, the mummies that were exhumed from these tombs once they finally were able to discover them and open them. None of this is certain, so I'm going to use that as kind of my disclaimer. There's going to be a lot of things where I say this person might have yeah. been his brother or it might have been his son, but Best I'm going to give you what I determined to be okay. the clearest way to understand it <laughs> and typically what most scholars would believe to be okay. the actual understanding of who this person was. So I is believed to have come from a city called Akmim, which was, a I think, a fairly small city in Upper Egypt. He was the son of a powerful Egyptian courtier named Yuya. That's his father. 
and Yuya's wife was Juyu. What is a what is a courtier? A courtier is typically just someone who's present at the kingdom or at the palace. It would be like a steward who would work in the palace. So it's someone who's probably a little bit prominent and very involved in serving the the king or the pharaoh, but he wouldn't have been actual royalty himself, which keeps eye out of that bloodline right. for who would be the successor to the throne someday. But just based on other family connections, it would imply that Ai's sister was named Taya, who was the wife of the pharaoh Amenhotep III. And his sister was also the mother of Akhenaten and the grandmother of Tutankhamun, which would technically make Ai the brother-in-law, uncle, and great-uncle of three different pharaohs from the 18th dynasty of Egypt. So is, is that respectively, or is he all three of those he would have been so this is what i'm talking about the names get a little bit yeah. out of order if if you if you don't know the 18th dynasty of egypt by heart which i'm assuming that you don't and most of our listeners probably don't i study it every morning <laughs> but the line of succession would have gone from and this is these are just the pharaoh names amenhotep the third and then it was akhenaten and then tutankhamun and there's a couple very short-term leaders in between some of them that we'll touch on but those mm. are the main ones that you need to know gotcha so just through the family relationship specifically his sister taya i would have been the brother-in-law of amenhotep III, the uncle of akhenaten and the great uncle of tutankhamun his sister since she was the wife of a pharaoh she held the title of a great royal wife and the father of a great royal wife is known as God's father. So the father of the pharaoh's wife holds the title God's father. So technically, I's father, Yuya, would have held this title because his father was the father of the pharaoh's wife. <laughs> <laughs> My God, my head is already spinning. Yeah, it's super convoluted, but I feel like we need to make a diagram and draw out their family tree. Right. And that might make this all a little bit easier to follow. <laughs> Now, we're going to focus back on I here. He also was called God's father. He had the same title that his father had, which implies that he himself had a daughter who was the wife of a pharaoh. So for this reason, we believe that I was the father of Nefertiti, who was the great royal wife of Akhenaten. And Nefertiti is actually one of the more well-known women from ancient Egypt. It, it might be a name that you've heard of that you maybe just don't know necessarily her story or her background, but it's actually believed that she herself served as a female pharaoh before Tutankhamun was elevated to his position. And like I said, she's pretty well known as far as Egyptian queens go, if you're up on your ancient Egypt history. Yeah. <laughs> it's also important to note that while Nefertiti was married to Akhenaten, and Akhenaten is Tutankhamun's father, Nefertiti was not Tutankhamun's mother. So a lot of people think that Tutankhamun was sort of disabled in a way because his parents were siblings, and that's correct. His parents were siblings. But as kings, pharaohs, they had a lot of wives and consorts and everything else that you would <laughs> come along with being the ruler of the country. Yeah. So it's likely that Tutankhamun was not the son of Nefertiti. It would have been through one of his other wives who happened to be his sister. Okay. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's also worth noting that I's wife, whose name was Tay, was actually Nefertiti's wet nurse, but not her mother. So I would have been married to someone before his, the wife he's credited with more than anyone. And that was a woman by the name of Iui, 
that's the one name in this whole thing that I couldn't find the right pronunciation for, but it's spelled mm. I-U-Y, and I'm guessing it's E-U-E. <laughs> it is believed that I had at least three children, at least three that are worth mentioning in the story today. Uh, Nefertiti, obviously the one we talked about, who was the wife of Akhenaten. Mutnajmet, which was another daughter of his. That's Mutnajmet, which is a beautiful name for Mutt a daughter. Mutnajmet. I'm, I'm going to name my daughter that. Mutnajmet. <laughs> She's referred to throughout history as Nefertiti's sister, so we just assume that she was also the child of I. And she was also the great royal wife of Horemheb, who was another pharaoh and actually the last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. So we'll talk about him later on as well. And then the third child worth mentioning from I is a boy named Noctman. And we're pretty sure he's I's son. It's possible he was like a son-in-law or a grandson or some other weird relation. But we give him credit as being I's son. But that would have been through I's first wife, A-U-E, or however we pronounce her name. So the whole reason I dragged you through this whole mess of his family here. (laughs) It's really just to explain that while I served under pharaohs who were generations younger than him, he was very interconnected with the royal family and the lineage of the 18th dynasty. What exactly was his role serving under the pharaohs? I'm glad you asked, Matt. We'll get right into that after we take a little break here and we try to parse through all these names. Aye, aye, Captain. (laughs) That was terrible. Look, if you've made it this far, we know you already love History's B-Side. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards, You can suggest an episode topic or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, so I know I probably just overwhelmed everyone listening to this right now with all the names that went into his family and how everyone is intermixed with everyone else. So I'm just going to give you a quick (laughs) recap of the important ones before we get into more of the main story today. So our main character today, the one that we're really talking about as our B-sider, is named I. Essentially, he's the old guy in the story. He's going to be older than pretty much anyone else that we talk about. But some of the other names that are going to come up here that you should know who they are, Akhenaten is his nephew, and Akhenaten is a pharaoh. He is the pharaoh. And Akhenaten is married to Nefertiti. She's the great royal wife of the pharaoh. And Nefertiti mm. is also I's daughter. So I, father-in-law of Akhenaten, the pharaoh. Hopefully this <laughs> helps clear things up a little bit. Well, it's, it's good to know which ones we need to remember. 
Yeah. And really the only other one that is going to stand out to being important is Tutankhamun, who's King Tut. He's the great nephew of I, and obviously they'll have a relationship later on, which is really what we're here to talk about today. But first we'll talk about Akhenaten as the pharaoh, because that's really where I started to have prominent roles within the the palace, the royal family, the the royal court of the pharaoh. Every time you say his name, I think you're talking about yourself. <laughs> I'm like, wait, you were at, in the court of the ancient pharaohs? <laughs> so under Akhenaten, I actually served in the military where he held titles such as the overseer of the horses and troop commander. <laughs> and eventually he rose to the very prominent position of overseer of all the horses of his majesty (laughs) overseer of all the horses (laughs) can you imagine that as a military title today oh no it's hysterical overseer of all the tanks (laughs) (laughs) well that's the thing is it sounds ridiculous but that was actually a very prominent military position then because think how important horses were to the egyptian military right yeah it was actually only one step below general as far as their military hierarchy went. (laughs) As he rose through the ranks in the pharaoh's court, he held titles such as, get ready for these, fan bearer on the king's right hand, (laughs) which was essentially an advisor to the pharaoh and was a very important position, but sounds more like some guy that stands there with a giant palm leaf and makes sure the pharaoh doesn't break a sweat. (laughs) That's exactly what I thought. I was like, wow, he went from the overseer of all the horses to just a fan guy? (laughs) One of his other titles was Acting Scribe of the King, Beloved by Him. All right. All right. That's a... (laughs) I feel feel like that's appropriate. Beloved. I would beloved my scribe, too, if I was a king. (laughs) And then his most prominent title that we mentioned in the last section was God's Father, which really is just implying that he was the father-in-law of the pharaoh, the father of the pharaoh's great royal wife. In some instances, that title could also refer to his relationship with the pharaoh as a mentor or even a father figure of sorts to Tutankhamun, because we'll notice later on that I has a much closer relationship to Tutankhamun than they did with Akhenaten. And when we look back and see God's father as a title, that's really just coming from I's tomb. So we don't necessarily know at what point in his life he was called God's father, but we're pretty sure that Nefertiti was his daughter and also the great royal wife of Akhenaten, so the name would have applied to both. He could have had that title from both being a mentor to Tutankhamun as well as being Nefertiti's father, but typically it would be the latter because he was the literal father of the pharaoh's wife. I feel like we need to assign each other a made-up Egyptian title for, for this episode or something. What would be yours? Um, frantic collector of bizarre Egyptian names. Beloved. <laughs> I think I am the acting scribe of this episode, beloved by probably not our audience because they're the ones having to <laughs> decipher through all these names. Beloved by Rita. There you go. <laughs> so I was a, how do we call this? He knew how to play the game in politics. I think this is probably one that I don't have a lot to back this up on, except for some sketchy things that we'll talk about later on in his story. But I don't think I is someone that we can consider to be a hero in history's B-side. 
I think he definitely knew how to play the political games to get ahead. And mm-hmm. one of the earlier examples is just his very strict loyalty to Akenaten, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because Akenaten is the pharaoh and could probably just, you know, have I killed or something if he's not loyal to him. But Akenaten also had some crazy ideas that really weren't very popular with the rest of Egypt, but he was the pharaoh and who's going to say no to him? So Akenaten backed him up and kind of went along with it blindly. He followed him when he moved the Egyptian capital from the city of Thebes to the city of Akenaten, named after himself. And really the biggest thing that Akenaten did that kind of made the rest of Egypt mad was that he rejected the traditional gods that they worshipped in favor of what's known as the Amarna religion. No. And this whole period... Not the Amarna. (laughs) Not the Amarna religion. This whole period is known as the Amarna period. So we'll reference that a few times. And it is a pretty well-known portion of ancient Egypt history. But it's looked back at with kind of a pretty dark mark because Mm. it just was a very stark contrast from what the rest of ancient Egypt was used to and what they traditionally did. So what the Amarna religion was, was essentially the first version of a monotheistic religion, which was kind of heretical to what Egyptians typically did, what they worshipped. Yeah. Akhenaten embraced the worship of the Aten, which was essentially his one supreme god. The Aten was the sun disk. And what I mean by that is that it was an aspect of what's known as the traditional sun god in Egypt. Religion would have been the Ra Amun Horus. And that's three different words. Ra is the daytime sun, Amun is the sun of the underworld, and Horus is the sunrise. The Aten, as Akhenaten posed as the supreme god in his Amarna religion, was the literal sun disk. Like, when you look up in the sky and see the sun, that's the Aten that he's referencing. Okay. Think yeah. about if you were to just draw the sun on a paper. If you were a kindergartner drawing the sun, you would draw a circle with some lines coming out of it. That's the Aten as he's viewing it. Gotcha. And there's a lot of similar drawings that are represented in ancient Egyptian art from this time period that would show that type of sun because that's essentially just their religious drawings and the the ways that they idolize the Aten. Sure. And it's interesting because this type of belief system likely stemmed from early scientific understanding of the sun's energy being the source of all life, essentially. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, crops like... and agriculture. Yeah, the, the sun itself was very important to life in ancient yeah. Egypt. So originally this type of belief system would be defined as henotheism, which is devotion to one god but accepting of other gods. So Akhenaten really didn't say that the other Egyptian gods didn't exist anymore or that you couldn't worship them, but he made it pretty clear that the Aten was the god. And over time, Akhenaten did eventually ban idols of all other gods besides the Aten. Wow. He expressed that the Aten only represented the god and that the god transcended creation, so could not be fully understood or represented. And in that idea, it's a much more monotheistic perspective, that really it's it's not just the sun disk, but the sun disk is representative of God itself, like all that God can be. Hmm. Now, I, who was loyal to Akhenaten as one of his advisors, embraced this Amarna religion. It's possible, like I said, that he just followed this belief system as a way to get ahead rather than out of real conviction and really believing that the Aten was this supreme God. But he was loyal to Akhenaten, so he kind of did what he had to do. 
and he actually wrote or he's credited with writing the hymn of Aten, which is a very famous, well-known worship hymn from the time period dedicated to this this god, this religion. And the text of the hymn was found written in Ai's tomb. Now, what's super interesting about this when I found it is that when you look at the translations of it into English, the actual text and words that are written, there's a strong correlation between the hymn of Aten and Psalm 104 in both the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. So I'm just going to read you a couple lines from both so you can kind of get an idea what I mean by that. In Hymn of a Ten, there's the first line says, O soul God, beside whom there is none. Psalm 104 reads, O Yahweh my God, you are very great. Hymn of a Ten says, How many are your deeds? You made the earth as you wished, you alone, all peoples, herds, and flocks. Whereas Psalm reads, O Yahweh, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So you can kind of see that there's very similar wording between the two. Yeah. They're not obviously direct word for word, but it's just very similar style, very similar descriptions of the land, the way that the sun in one setting or God in the other setting kind of bless the earth and all of creation in the same ways. And both texts go on to have described very similar behaviors of lions, man, birds, and even water, just the way that those creatures mm. and nature react in the same ways directly from both texts using almost identical wording. But there is a really important distinction made about this because that even though I's hymn of a 10 was written probably 600 years before the Psalms, the similarities are more likely caused by the same kind of writing traditions of the region and of course language translations so these weren't written in english even though we're kind of copying them over we're going to have a lot of similar words or phrases that came from that time period that just don't necessarily translate too right. differently so it's possible that eyes hymn could be somewhat connected to the psalmist writings but it would be more likely inspiration and coincidence than any form of plagiarism or copying right. by the authors of psalms i mean these were separated by hundreds of years right yeah and you would see a lot of these religious texts would get passed down so it's possible that the author of psalm 104 had heard the hymn of a 10 or knew the hymn of a 10 and probably derived a lot of those same types of beliefs like these people believe that it was the sun causing this but we know that it was god so that's what I mean by it was probably more inspiration. It's probably not true that they just copied the text literally because yeah. we're dealing with translations and things like that. But it's it, there's probably, a, you can assume that there's some bit of inspiration and understanding of even just belief system in God. And we just have two different gods that most religions think that their God provides similar things to them. Right. So Akenaten ruled Egypt for about 17 years and... By the time that he died, I was one of his top advisors. I had really rose himself to a prominent position within the government. Following the death of Akhenaten, Egypt was briefly ruled by a relatively unknown pharaoh whose name was Smenkare. Smenkare may have been Akhenaten's brother or his son, but it's believed that he died within the first year of his reign, so there's really not much that he did. There's not too much known about him to really talk about. And then Egypt would have been ruled by a female pharaoh who was known as Neferneferuaten. And 
It's believed that what a name. <laughs> yeah, right. It's believed that Nefer Neferuatan may have actually been I's daughter Nefertiti, which mm. would have been Akhenaten's wife. So it's possible that Nefer Neferuatan actually ruled before Smenkare or vice versa. There's really not a lot of records of this time period, and we'll explain why later on in the episode. But the female ruler, which we pretty much assume is Nefertiti, ruled for about two or three years, and Smenkare ruled for less than a year. So it's really only a couple years there, and probably more than likely we knew who the next pharaoh of Egypt was going to be, and these were kind of transitional until that pharaoh was ready to take the throne. But like I said, we really don't know a whole lot about this sort of transitional period because the entire Amarna period was deliberately wiped from ancient Egyptian records. Why was it wiped from the records? Like I said, it was really unpopular belief system. Mm. It was kind of going against what ancient Egyptians believed their religion to be up until this point. And there were some people that took it pretty personally that is going to come back around in our story as we go on. Gotcha. So like I said, we were kind of waiting for this new pharaoh to be ready to come into power, and that next pharaoh was Tutankhamun. As we know, King Tut took the throne when he was only eight or nine years old. He actually originally had the name Tutankaten, which was in reference to the Aten god. Mm. <laughs> he was Akhenaten's son. Uh, his parents were believed to be Akhenaten, and like I said earlier, one of Akhenaten's sisters who also happened to be his wife. So... Really, probably not the best setup for a healthy young boy, but he was named <laughs> in honor of Akhenaten's preferred god, the Aten. And then because Akhenaten died, Tutankhamun was in line to be the pharaoh and really took over the throne at either eight or nine years old. Because of Tutankhamun's young age, he relied heavily on his chief advisors to establish policy and structure while he was the leader. And this is where we kind of get into some of the terminology that we used at the beginning of the episode. The pharaoh's chief advisor was typically known as the vizier. Uh, usually there would only be one vizier, and this person would be the highest ranking official in Egypt to serve the pharaoh. The position was appointed by the pharaoh himself, but it often came from the royal family. It would be someone who was chosen for their loyalty or their talent, or often the position was just passed down from father to son if one had the position he would his son yeah. would be the next one in line to take it probably the best way to explain the relationship of a vizier to pharaoh would be something like the prime minister with royal oversight so mm. we think about england which has a prime minister who's sort of like the leader of the country at least the government but there's still that royal monarchy who should be able to overrule the prime minister at any point and that's how this was too the pharaoh could exert his power over the vizier, but really the vizier was kind of the one making a lot of the policy decisions for the country. Gotcha. The vizier also coordinated the security around the pharaoh, so he was in charge of who could come and go into the palace and actually see or meet with the pharaoh. So he was very, very well connected in being around the pharaoh and essentially protecting him. Yeah. When Tutankhaten came to power, Egypt had been divided into upper and lower regions. Not really sure why on this. I don't know if this had to do with the Amarna period still going on. Yeah. There might have just been divisions because of that. But Egypt was divided, so they actually had two viziers that one overseed each region. And 
Tutankhaten's viziers were named Yuzer Montu, who is the vizier for Upper Egypt, and then there was another one whose name was Pentju, who held the title of vizier, but it's not really clear if he was the vizier for Lower Egypt or if he just took over after Yuzer Montu left or died or something happened. Okay. The reason I specify that there were two different viziers is that even though King Tut had their advice and them being kind of in charge of their regions, he never really relied on them to be his chief advisors. Yeah. He more relied on Horemheb, who was the general of the armies, so he would be like the top military official. And of course, I, who's often referred to as King Tut's Grand Vizier. Although Grand Vizier isn't really a thing. <laughs> it's possible that I never actually held the title of Vizier, especially under oh, King Tut. I's <laughs> relationship to Tut was pretty unique. And like I said, though we called him King Tut's Grand Vizier, his actual title was really unclear. It It's not really stated anywhere whether he had an official title with Tutankhaten other than just being this close personal advisor and maybe still had that God's father title. Yeah. There was actually found a gold foil inside of Ai's tomb, which bared an inscription that read Vizier Dur of Mayat, which is a distinctly different title from what you would call one of the Pharaoh's actual viziers. Hmm. And I was sometimes called the priest of Mayat. So this Mayot refers to the ancient Egyptian concepts of truth, balance, order, harmony, law, morality, and justice. So this really suggests that I had more of an informal role than any actual title in the government. Yeah. But also that he maybe viewed himself as the arbiter of truth and right in Egyptian society. More than likely, and the way that I'm interpreting it, is that I was just taking advantage of the young pharaoh. Sure. He he was the main influence on pretty much all of King Tut's reign. He was the one making all of the actual decisions for the very young pharaoh. Under the direction of I, King Tut moved the capital back to Thebes from the city of Akhenaten. And he also restored worship to the traditional gods. He returned Egypt's polytheism rather than Akhenaten's pseudo-monotheism. And this is when Tutankhaten formally changed his name to Tutankhamun, which was a reference to the Egyptian god Amun, and traditionally he's referred to as the king of the gods. He also restored monuments that had been destroyed under Akhenaten. Do you have any clue why he was so willing to switch, why I was so willing to switch his views from mono to polytheism? Because didn't he help Akhenaten, you know, move away from the polytheism? Yeah, so I think this is really why I get the idea that I wasn't that genuine with Akhenaten. I think he mm. was just kind of going along with it because that's what the pharaoh said and what the pharaoh wanted. Gotcha. I think I believed in the traditional Egyptian religion of having many different gods and as soon as Akhenaten was no longer in power, I kind of swooped in and sort of groomed Tutankhamun to do what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things that Tutankhamun is credited with having achieved or done as the pharaoh were essentially policies of I. So we'll see later on the story that, and spoiler alert, I actually becomes the pharaoh after Tutankhamun. And a lot of these hmm. things that Tutankhamun had put into place 
weren't really finished until I came to power. And the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of change between the two kind of shows a lot that what Tutankhamun was doing was really what I was doing. Sure. <laughs> he was the one who was really influencing everything that was accomplished under King Tut. So giving him credit, King Tut also began the construction of Sphinx Avenue, which is a sort of a large monument area with lots of temples and lots of these Sphinx structures that was dedicated to Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Because while the policies did change from Akhenaten being the pharaoh, he was still his father and his predecessor. So there's going to be some monuments to him. Tutankhamun reigned for about nine years before he died pretty unexpectedly. So he died before the age of 20, if I'm doing the math right? Yeah, he. it's generally believed he was about 18, maybe 19 at the time that he died. Wow. He had, obviously, some not great health. <laughs> yeah. I mean, aside from the, the family inbreeding and stuff that kind of led to all of them not being of necessarily the best health, there were some other things. I mean, it's 1300 BC, <laughs> so we know that... Yeah medicine isn't necessarily that great and it's pretty easy to get sick and infected with different things that kept everyone pretty young in those days right (laughs) now because Tutankhamun was so young and died unexpectedly he didn't necessarily have an heir lined up to succeed him as pharaoh and like I said he would eventually be succeeded by I which kind of leads to some gray areas because there are some scholars who believe that I might have murdered Tutankhamun in order to usurp the throne. This was kind of based on some x-rays that were performed on Tutankhamun's body in 1968, which possibly suggested a blow to the head. Now, I will clear the name of our guy here because the murder theory is pretty much dismissed at this point. Hmm. There are more recent x-rays that suggest that Tutankhamun died from either a combination of malaria, a broken leg, or Kohler disease, or simply sickle cell disease. But there are some very unusual accusations made about him. There were a lot of other people that were potentially killed around the same time as King Tut that if you read back on some theories, some people do attribute them to I as well, such as Hmm. both of king tut's children which died in infancy um i mean neither one of them obviously lived long enough to even develop let alone become a potential heir so some people think that he might have been involved with that i don't really think that's the case just from what i've read on it i mean i'm gonna chalk that one up to just bad medicine and bad health and inbreeding so (laughs) that's probably why (laughs) the young tutankhamen didn't live very long or have any children of his own really yeah King Tut was buried in a small tomb that's located in the Valley of the Kings. The tomb had been converted for his use because, like I said, he died unexpectedly and he was young. They probably didn't have a tomb ready for him yet. The tomb that was given to him was likely originally intended for I because he was much older. So they kind of assumed that he would be the one to die first. And it was a smaller tomb because I wasn't technically royal. He was involved with the family, of course, and connected to the family, but he himself was not in lineage to be Pharaoh. And there's actually a depiction on a wall inside the tomb of Tutankhamun, which shows I performing the opening of the mouth burial ceremony on Tutankhamun when he died. Hmm. So like I said, I succeeded Tutankhamun as Pharaoh. He may have actually stolen the position uh, because Tutankhamun didn't leave an actual 
err as far as children. It's believed that Horemheb, who was Tutankhamun's general of the armies, probably should have been the rightful heir to being the pharaoh. Horemheb, we found his tomb was labeled with the title Eri Pat, which translates roughly to hereditary prince. So it's mm. hard to say whether that title was given to him by Tutankhamun or if that's like a self-given title. Yeah. But it sort of implies that he would have been the rightful heir to Tutankhamun. Although Horemheb himself didn't have any familial connection to the royal family, so he wasn't in any type of lineage. But he was actually in Asia with the Egyptian army at the time of Tutankhamun's death. So he really wasn't there to stake his claim to the throne. <laughs> so it kind of opened the door a little bit for I himself to take over and snag yeah. control. Now, I claim the throne largely based on the premise that he did the burial ceremony for Tutankhamun. That typically is a ceremony that would have been done by the pharaoh-to-be. But since there was no pharaoh-to-be, I did it as his closest advisor and mentor of sorts. Hmm. And using that logic, he kind of assumed the role of pharaoh himself. It's also believed, and as I mentioned earlier, I maybe had some sketchy spots in his later life. It's believed that I potentially married King Tut's very young wife, Ankizanamun, immediately after Tutankhamun's death, which was just another effort to stake his claim to the throne. This feels a little bit fishy, like a little bit suspicious. I don't know. Yeah. Eyes, he's crossing some lines. Yeah, that, and it's definitely one of those, like, this is going to not sound good, but it's history and history is not good. I don't think women in this time had a lot of choice in who they became the wife of. Yeah. So this girl was probably very young. And after being the wife of the pharaoh who died, she probably didn't have a lot of control in becoming someone else's wife. Right. But what's really weird about it is that she's not recorded as I's wife in his tomb. Like I said, that was Tay. That's the wife that he's most attributed to. So it's likely that if he did marry her, he married her only to claim power and then immediately dismissed her. Sounds a lot like Tinder. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> the other gross part about that whole situation is that I was probably her maternal grandfather. So, Yikes. yeah. <laughs> it's believed that I ruled as Pharaoh for about four years. It's possible that number could have been more like seven or nine years. This is kind of where we get into the gray area of dating this time period because it is from the Amarna period still that was kind of wiped out of history. But we're pretty sure that he ruled for about four years and then died soon after. He really didn't do a lot as Pharaoh. He continued to return Egypt to the worship of the traditional gods. He finished the Sphinx Avenue and some of the other monuments that Tutankhamun had started, or really I had started through Tutankhamun. And he completed the large tomb that was originally being built for Tutankhamun. Uh, that would later be used for I himself. So they were actually buried mm. in each other's tombs. <laughs> <laughs> I did designate a successor for his throne. He chose his son, Noctmim, which was evidenced by inscriptions on statues of Noctmim that read crown prince or king's son. But I'm just going to guess that Noctmim wasn't quite as lucky or savvy <laughs> as his father to just kind of 
take over the throne because Horam Heb, who was still the commander of the army and probably super pissed off at this point, claimed power instead. And Horam Heb actually succeeded I as the pharaoh of Egypt. He also accomplished this in part by marrying I's daughter Mutnajmet, which is that <laughs> unfortunately named girl from way earlier in the episode. <laughs> I'm a bit surprised that marrying into power was effective. You'd think men like Hormheb would have attempted to stop this kind of thing from happening. Like, you know? I don't know. I mean, I think in this time, marriage was a very, like, traditional part of maybe establishing authority. Yeah. So, because King Tut's wife would have been the great royal wife and would have had that title by marrying the great royal wife, you kind of lean into that pharaoh position which is what I did, mm. or because Mutnajmet is now the daughter of the pharaoh, it would make sense for someone who wasn't in royal lineage like Horemheb to marry the pharaoh's daughter to then put yourself in that family. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly how you find the, the family lineage for who the next pharaoh should be. I think it's really interesting that Horemheb, who wasn't in the family was able to kind of just take over power but i guess if you're a military general you can find some ways to do that and get some support in doing so right horemheb was the last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty he made it his personal mission to destroy all the monuments and records of the amarna period and monotheism so he is a lot of the reason why the records of Akhenaten and Smenkare and Neferneferuaten and Tutankhamun and I are so ambiguous. That whole period of Amarna leaders, even though Tutankhamun and I kind of started to steer the country back to the traditional Egyptian gods, Horemheb grouped them in with this Amarna period, especially because Salty. I was pretty involved in it as well. And yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Horemheb was not connected to the family and maybe just didn't really like the fact that I stole power from him when he thought he was the rightful heir to the throne. Yeah. So he basically destroyed as much as he could from this time period. There's not a whole lot of records and that's why this whole episode has been so confusing with who's related to who and who wrote what and who established what. It's all based on records that we found in tombs basically and trying to translate these small items and things like that. Right. So if you want to blame someone for this episode being confusing, blame Hormheb, because I Boo. don't have a better reason than that. <laughs> Boo Hormheb. <laughs> but I did think this was interesting too, just to kind of wrap everything up and tie us back to our original discussion of ancient Egypt. Hormheb's vizier was a man named Paramesu, who actually later became Ramses I. So Hormheb was the final pharaoh of the 18th dynasty but his vizier who succeeded him actually became the first pharaoh of the 19th dynasty oh wow and ramses the first his grandson was actually ramses the second or ramses the great who is regarded as the most powerful pharaoh in ancient egypt and i said earlier is commonly regarded as the pharaoh of the exodus who moses challenged to free the israelites from slavery in the biblical old testament so it's kind of interesting really that the if you go back and try to name two pharaohs at least from our understanding of ancient egypt the two you pick are pretty close together when you look at the grand scheme of what ancient egypt was 
You had basically the third to last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty in Tutankhamun, and then what I think was the third pharaoh of the 19th dynasty in Ramses II. And we, those are the ones that we know. Those are the A-siders. <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, you have I that's kind of connected to all of them. Yeah, and I think that's what was most interesting to me about it. Like, obviously, the reason I picked him for the topic was just the fact that he was the brains behind King Tut. He was the one making the decisions. And even though King Tut wasn't a super successful or noteworthy leader on his own right it's really he's only popular because he was a child and we found his tomb pretty well intact but someone was making the decisions for him and that's why i picked him as a b-sider but the more you dig into it he was involved with like the entire family the royal lineage of the 18th dynasty of egypt so it was really cool to like actually dig into that and learn more about it and honestly if you want to learn more about ancient egypt there's centuries of information out there that you can try to yeah, parse through and get a good story out of. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Speaking of which, are you ready for your quiz? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I got to tell you, there are pretty general like Egypt questions because <laughs> like you said, there wasn't a lot about I to, to throw your way. I'm really worried that someone's going to listen to this and clip some quote from me saying like, I married the very young child wife which is not referencing me but i mean <laughs> the person i kept thinking I, I kept thinking that as you were saying that over and over again like i was in the court of tutankhamun <laughs> oh boy well we have a record just in case that happens <laughs> let's get to the quiz we'll be right back What is it? Who does it? Why does it matter? The Science Night podcast answers these questions and showcases the latest in science news and discoveries. Join us every other Friday to meet the scientists behind the science and the stories behind the work. Learn more at SciNight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T.com. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. Find out more at riverpower.xyz. All right, welcome back. As many of you know, we like to end every episode with a short quiz for our host to see how much he studied and learned about his topic, as well as to give our listeners a chance to test their own knowledge. So are you ready, Phil, for some Egyptian, ancient Egyptian trivia? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this episode was a lot, like several hours of research for one hour of just me stumbling through a whole bunch of names and trying not <laughs> to confuse the listeners. <laughs> hey, don't be too hard on yourself. You are, after all, the scribe of his majesty beloved by him or something like that. <laughs> Scribe of this episode beloved by 
no one because this was all of our horrible. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't find a lot of good questions about I mostly because of you know what we repeatedly talked about the records being destroyed and all that. Um, and you were very thorough in your coverage of his life and his accomplishments, if we can call them that. <laughs> so the first question is kind of, a, it might be a lob for you. It might be a softball. I don't know how much you've you've studied the, the book of Exodus, but you mentioned <laughs> that, that Ramses. You always give me the biblical questions. I'm testing your, I'm testing your knowledge, Phil. <laughs> So Moses asked Pharaoh Ramses to let the Hebrews return to their homelands in Canaan, but he refused. And as a consequence, 10 plagues were inflicted on the Egyptians in a divine demonstration of power and displeasure designed to persuade the Pharaoh to reverse his decision. Can you name those 10 plagues? Or oh how many of those gosh, 10 plagues? Oh my gosh, this is name? going back to my elementary school, Sunday school. Sunday school, yeah. Studying. This is going to be bad if I can't think of all of them. So, locusts. Yes. Frogs. Yep. Famine. Water into blood. Yes. Um, shoot. That's only four. Is drought one? Drought is not one. Something to do with fire? Pillars of fire. That's fiery hail. Oh, okay. Fiery hail. Um, I'll take that. I mean, the the last one is the killing of the firstborn son of every Egyptian. Um, I'm just struggling on the, the other four. Go ahead. Tell me what it is. So the ones you missed. Well, I don't know that um, famine is one. It might, I mean, famine might well, be caused by some of these. I but guess, isn't killing livestock one or something like that? Yes, pest pestilence killed most of the domestic animals in Egypt. Okay. Um, the other ones were lice, hordes of wild animals, destroying everything in their path, <laughs> and boils. Oh, boils. Boils. <laughs> on the pharaoh his servants and the egyptians and then i don't know if you mentioned the darkness the thick darkness oh, yeah. covered okay. the land yeah you named a lot of those though that was good i mean that's yeah. as many as i would have expected you to, to be able to name <laughs> i feel like that's one i should have got but maybe if you asked me when i was like eight instead of 28 <laughs> i would have gotten locusts and maybe the fiery i don't know raining fire or whatever <laughs> you gotta know the killing the firstborns why we have passover i don't know that i would have known that not we but <laughs> that's why jews celebrate passover <laughs> all right for your second question we talked about the different dynasties in ancient egypt um, specifically about the pharaohs which was the term for the leader of the dynasty of whatever time we might be talking about but what during the time that tutankhamen and i lived would the quote-unquote leader of the egyptian dynasty be called it wasn't pharaoh i don't know i mean i thought it was pharaoh but now you're making me think it wasn't <laughs> this is this is my favorite question <laughs> i don't know go ahead this is rude it's just a rude question so 
The term pharaoh actually wasn't used for a ruler until 1210 BCE. During the time of the 18th dynasty, the term, or I should say the Egyptian word for the term king was being used more frequently. So the term pharaoh started being used kind of retroactively after the 19th dynasty. So this just makes like my whole spiel at the beginning of the episode about ancient Egypt just seem like a sham. I should have known that. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> historians do use the term pharaoh for yeah. the entirety of the, I don't know, of the the records, but all right. <laughs> this one is, is probably just going to be a guesser unless you really know your Egyptian geography and landmarks, but, and it's a multiple choice question, so it'll be a little bit easier, but how many pyramids have scientists discovered in Egypt? 13, 37, 68, or 130? Um, man. Your multiple choices are always like very widespread. <laughs> widespread like, numbers. Very different <laughs> numbers. And they all sound right. <laughs> I feel like it's a pretty good number, but when we think about the pyramids, we only focus on like the, what is it? The pyramids of Giza or whatever, yeah. like the really famous ones. Right. So I'm going to guess it's 68. You would be wrong. It was 130. <laughs> they have discovered 130 pyramids in Egypt. Wow. <laughs> that's crazy. Now, you know, I know that's way more than I would have expected. I mean, are they all like big? I don't know. I don't think they're all big like the pyramids at Giza. I guess I just have no concept of what that would look like. I mean, I feel like it's kind of pathetic if they're just like little five foot pyramids all over the place. That's not very right. Impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Do you count that as a pyramid? If it's like it's a tomb, but it's like the size of a normal headstone that we have today. Is that yeah. a pyramid? Technically, yes, but no. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, they've got to be pretty good size, though, if they're counting them, I would think. Yeah. And if they've survived however many years, like, there's erosion and stuff. Right. So I kind of feel like we should introduce a new segment to the end of our episodes, because we kind of did this on the last one, but a little bit different, I guess. And that's really just, is today's B-Sider a good or bad person? We didn't necessarily do it with Ona Judge last week, but sure. we did it with, like, George Washington. Yeah. So, I, was he a good guy or a bad guy? Um, that's so hard for me to answer because I frankly think the entire, like, lineal passing of power is a crock of shit. So, I don't mind that he <laughs> didn't really buy into it and tried to subvert it and go around it. Um, on the other hand, he seems like he manipulated the situation for his own power gain. Um, and I mean, let's be honest, married a underaged girl and probably manipulated an underage boy while he was Pharaoh. So I'm going to go with possible probably not. that it's possible that Tutankhamun's wife was not underage at the time that he married her, but more realistically, she probably was very young, but also they probably didn't have designations like underage at the time. Well, so. sure. Like I said, <laughs> it's hard for me to answer. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. 
by 2021 standards, yeah, he's probably a bad dude because he played the political game and, you know, maybe he was involved in some other sketchy stuff. But right. I think he was just a product of the time. That's kind of how things were then. That's yep. how people got to power. And... As was the times. <laughs> I don't know. Inter- interesting. I don't know that he was necessarily a good guy, but he might have been a bad guy. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we're split. I don't know enough about him to decide. All right. No verdict for I. He lives another day. Well, not tech, <laughs> not really. <laughs> we'll have to debate that on the like ones that maybe aren't clear distinctions as whether this person is a hero or a definitely a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> History is confusing. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for putting up with all of my bad pronunciations and confusing family relationships throughout this episode not mine i guess but eyes confusing family relationships <laughs> i hope it wasn't too difficult to follow please feel free to reach out you can contact us by email at historiesbside at gmail.com or find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube at historiesbside thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you again next week History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service. And follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Melito and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side. History's B-Side.